Welkom bij Creative Achievers, waarin ik, Wouter Boon, op zoek ga naar de geheimen van creatief succes. In deze maandelijkse podcast interview ik creatieve geesten die goede ideeën weten om te zetten in nieuwe producten. Of soms zelfs geheel nieuwe markten. De podcast bevindt zich daarmee op het snijvlak van creativiteit en ondernemerschap. Goede ideeën hebben we immers allemaal. Maar deze ideeën omzetten naar succes, dat is waarin Creative Achievers zich onderscheiden. Ik maak deze podcast samen met marketingtijdschrift Adformatie en Amp Amsterdam, de Sonic Branding Company. If you wonder why I am talking English today, it is because my guest is Jason Denham. Uh, Jason is the founder of Denham, uh, the world famous jeans brand that is sold in more than 20 countries around the world. So a real international brand. And uh, Jason speaks English, of course, that's why I am speaking English. And although by now Jason is a true Amsterdammer, he already lives here for quite a while, he grew up in Newcastle and studied fashion design and business at the University of Manchester. In 1992, he won an internship and got a chance to design jeans for the band U2. I definitely want to speak about that because that sounds awesome. And in 1996, he was hired by Pepe Jeans and soon after relocated to Amsterdam when Pepe Jeans moved to Amsterdam. At the beginning of this millennium, uh, Jason founded his own brand, which was called Blue Blood. Some of you might still remember that. I, I remember having a, a polo of the brand. And in 2008, he finally wanted to transform his family name into the brand. And I'm very excited that you're here, Jason. Thank you so much. Thank you. you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Cool. Um, yeah, that's, that's quite a nice coincidence that your family name sounds like Denim. Definitely, I think it was meant to be. This was definitely the uh, the passion and and the career path for me. Absolutely. Were you were you already aware once you started to work in jeans? Were you already aware that your name sounded like denim and that maybe at some point in your career you would? Yeah, of course. Maybe use I it? mean, I've always been a creative guy, and and as a as a young student, creativity was always at the front of what I really loved to do. Um, of course, today I run a business and, and that's a big part of what I do. But creativity was always my lead. Um, when I was at art school and art college, I was always, you know, I studied drawing, painting, um, everything before I decided which which part of the creative arts I would get into. And I always had a thing for fashion and I always had a thing for denim. Yeah, so, yeah, because let's, if I may, we're definitely going to talk about that. But if I may go back a little bit, how did you start um, with fashion? So I guess fashion really started for me when I got to um, art school. And when I was at art school, I was experimenting with fashion. That's when I first found a passion for vintage clothing or visiting thrift stores, these kind of places where you can find all different kinds of stuff. Um, and I started really playing with clothing myself. So I was buying uh, shirts and, and customizing them. Or, or Already? Yeah, even, and this sounds a bit strange, and, <laughs> and I'm no cross-dresser, but buying dresses and chopping them into shirts and ah, restyling right. and, you know, just playing around with, with a, an expression of style, if you like. But then the thing that I really got into was denim. So, of course, denim, denim, my, denim, my family name, and it all resonates together. Um, but I've always loved denim style. You know, I think, you know, denim is the source of of expression or rebellion or, or this kind of thing. It's had many milestones in fashion history when denim has really counted. And denim worked for me because it was a style that's effortless and timeless and, and works in many, many ways. So, you know, as a student, you wear denim differently to when you're a professional, but denim works for everybody in different ways. And, and I kind of fell in love with what you can do with it and, and how it grows. But if you compare that to cutting up dresses and, and making new pieces of clothing, yeah. then that, if, if I may, that sounds more exciting maybe than jeans because they're always blue uh, or roughly yeah. always blue. And, y you know, there's no, much course. more similarity in jeans than in yeah. fashion in general. There is, but once I really started to study denim as a fabric, then I really discovered and learned what an incredible material this is. 
and how much scope and diversity of what you can achieve with it there is. So, you know, you design something and you cut and you make and you sew and you put the thing together. Um, but when you do that with denim, you go through that process, but then you go through this whole finishing process. So you work with treatments and how you can change the color or you can, you can fade it out or you can do so many different kinds of things. That became an exciting thing. And were you already experimenting with that when you yeah. were a teenager? Yeah, I was playing with, with washing stuff and bleaching stuff and all different kinds of things. And when I went to university, I went to Manchester because at that time, Manchester was the best place on the planet really for the club scene. So there was incredible places like, which I'm sure you know, the Hacienda and the whole Manchester music, music scene was huge. And then there was, you know, there was the whole... Um, um, streetwear style of the time, if you like, which was acid and, and, and that kind of oh, dance okay. culture. And in that whole dance culture, there was a lot going on with, you know, jeans were the uniform in different fits and it was very wide legs and baggy and oh, yeah. also tie-dye <laughs> bleaching and all this kind of what, stuff. What year was that around? When This it was, was around 89-90 yeah. and that's when that really started to get going. Um, I went to university in 1990 to 94 in Manchester. Okay. Um, and it was just an explosion of, of Northern style. And, and of course, the UK, everything's about London and London's got, got so much going on. But there was a real, uh, a big thing happened with that music scene and with Manchester at that time. And it was, it was exciting to be a part of that. So you first moved to Manchester for the club scene, but then... Uh Was it after that that you decided I want to I want to go to university here or no? So I, I moved to I moved to Manchester to go and study fashion and to do the business ah, okay. degree. And when I looked at the options of um, of which schools interested me, there was three that I was interested in. One was Central St Martins in London, which is the probably the most um, famous fashion school in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, Manchester, I liked because it had the business side to it as well. So this was a new course that I was stepping into and it was fashion and business and technology and everything together. And and that looked interesting. And the third one that I, that I applied for and thought was interesting was uh, Edinburgh. And Edinburgh also did a very good fashion degree. It was very textile based, very much about fabric. And I thought, okay, this is good. Um, I put Central St. Martins in my offer second. Mm -hmm. um, and I received a very nice letter from those guys saying, um, uh, dear Mr. Denham, we are the most reputable, most, um, <laughs> most successful fashion school in the country. Yeah. And if you put a second in your offer, uh, you can forget your interview. That won't happen. Uh. So that wasn't, a, that wasn't a good move. Um, but I was very happy to go to Manchester and I went there and interviewed and got the place and fell in love with the city and the culture and what it was all about. Um, and it's great to be a part of that. So, and the funny, ironic thing is, there is now a plaque in Central St Martin's Fashion School uh, with my name and the logo of the brand. So, I'm actually sponsoring and um, oh yeah, you are part of that school now. So, um, okay, everything goes full circle. <laughs> so, what I'm interested in the the, the education in London uh, it, that's more of a, a more of a fashion. Education, at the time when I was at the time when I was at university, um, the London Fashion School was very much about fashion, fashion, flamboyant, and very much about catwalk and fashion and creativity, which is great. I, I was really into that too. But the Manchester, um, the Manchester course was quite quite innovative at the time because it was one of the first to really step into pushing creativity all about fashion and 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 combining that together with business knowledge and I really wanted to I mean I always had a little bit of interest and flair for marketing and and I really believe that products need a story to tell them mm -hmm. and even at that young age I realized what branding was all about and we were in quite a branding time in fashion anyway there was mm. a lot happening in that time in branding but um but that really got me excited and and when I took the course I had the opportunity to, of course, express my creativity, but but learn how to run a business as well, and that was exciting for me. So we're both both uh, sides of the spectrum. You were involved yeah. in both, yeah. like the the technique of of creating fashion, yeah. as well as the business side, how yeah. to market it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. So that was a nice balance in the end. Yeah, it was good to learn, and it's definitely helped me throughout my career because I, I of course, I took jobs 
as a designer when I finished uh, when I finished university, but then when I started my own companies and my own brands, then these things can can give you some good steps to get started. Of course, um, since then, of course, I, I think everybody knows that when you leave university, when you go into the real practical world, that's when you really learn how to do things. Yeah, uh, but it was a great start. Um. And at the time, did you have any, um, let's say, uh, role models or something? Because I read in an interview that you had a brief encounter with Paul Smith. You, yeah. I think you sort of, you went into a store in Covent Garden in yeah. London or something? What yeah. Was so being British, How did that happen? So being British, of course, I was very busy following the British designers. Um, and at that time in the kind of streetwear or in the party scene, there was cool things going on with designers like Catherine Hamnett, who's kind of one of the leaders in sustainability today. And she had a great political voice in fashion. Uh, there was club scene like John Richmond and destroy labels and cool stuff going on. But of course, one of the, the kind of, um, icons, icons <laughs> and leaders of British fashion for such a long time is Paul Smith. Yeah. Um, And I was always buying his stuff and saving up my money and, and getting stuff from him. And I was a big fan of what he did. You know, Paul Smith kind of, you know, he's very much worship tradition, destroy convention. So, you know, he's all, I think his mantra is something like classic with a twist. So he's always respectful to what tailoring is and that's his thing, but he's always tweaking it or changing it or doing something. And, and in everything he did, he's done incredible labels in, in Japan. And I really followed what he was doing, but at a young age, um, I wasn't really a hundred percent sure if I was going to really go into fashion or if I was going to go into graphic design, I was very big into okay. graphic art and that kind of, um, that kind of artistic discipline. So, uh, so I thought, okay, the best way for me to decide this is I was born in the north of England. I thought the best thing is go to London, go around the fashion stores, go to, go to the stores that I love and go to the galleries and look at graphics and see what really is going to be my future. Uh, it sounds crazy to go and decide that in a day, but it, it seemed like a good idea at the time when I was 17. Jumped on the train, went down to London and uh, looked at all the galleries and got very inspired by graphic art, which which I still very much am today. Uh, but then I went into um, Covent Garden and I hadn't been on Floral Street before, but I'd read about it and I knew all about it. And walking onto Floral Street, I was very inspired by a line of stores, which were all Paul Smith stores. Mm -hmm. And each one of these stores had a fantastic little different edge creative concept so there was a men's store a jeans store a kids store an accessory store so it was maybe also the interior design of the whole it was everything about it absolutely so the interior design right, just was quirky and and traditional but beautiful and modern and all these things all at the same time you know paul smith's a very eclectic guy if you like he spent an incredible amount of time in asia and there was There was Japanese prints on the wall, or there was stuff that really resonated. So, so with he me, maybe had but like very British at the same time. So he maybe had like a flagship store before it even existed, or, or yeah, wasn't think, it like that? I think it, I think that was a huge inspiration for me, and and subconsciously, and I didn't plan this at all, but subconsciously, when I built my brand Denim here in Amsterdam, um, I went down the same journey. So we made a cluster of stores here in Amsterdam. We have uh, we have five stores mm -hmm. here in the city. We have um, we have a flagship store at the Hobbermastraat, where a lot of the big brands have their their flagships in the city. Mm -hmm. But I really fell in love with the Nine Streets in in Amsterdam. And the Nine Streets for me is a bit more, if you like, a bit more Floral Street, Covent Garden, a little bit that kind of style. And it's more more what I was looking for. And what we created there was the home of the brand. So my headquarters was there, the office was there, and we had a coffee corner and we have uh, a men's store and a denim bar and a women's store. And we've really built the footprint and the story of our brand. So, so Paul Smith has been a big inspiration for me. And on that day when I was in London, I, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I, um, I went into the store and I walked into the, to the, to the front door of the, the men's store. And I knew that Paul's office was upstairs. There's a circular 
spiral staircase in the store and I walked in and I said, hello, my name's Jason Denham and I'm here to see Paul Smith. And the <laughs> store manager said, nice to meet you, Jason, please come upstairs. And he walked me up the stairs and he dropped me in his office. It went that easily. And it went that easily. And I sat there with intrepidation and and, uh, and then Paul walked in his office and he said, excuse me, do I know you? <laughs> do we have an appointment? And I said, no, I'm very sorry. I just love five minutes of your time. Uh, and Paul was incredibly gracious, and and of course he's known for this, and he's very uh, he's I think he's been a coach and a and a mentor to many other people, uh, but he was brilliant, and he said, look, I'll give you fifteen minutes and a coffee. We had a great chat. Oh wow! Um, and he told me very very inspiring stories in such a short time, and I think this is one of the key things that really made me say, okay, I won't be a graphic graphic designer. I'll really focus on fashion and bring my graphic interest into into fashion. But, you know, one of the biggest takeaway things about that whole conversation, or two of them, um, I asked him how he started his business, and he told me that he, um, he built his first collection, which was all about white shirts. And the way that Paul spoke about, the way that Paul spoke about white shirts gave me chicken skin. Oh, wow. All about the details and the buttons and the buttonholes and the weight and the and the construction and incredibly passionate guy. And I knew even then when he spoke about white shirts, I knew that my white shirts was denim. That was my thing. That was the thing that I loved. The equivalent of the white shirt. That bit. was, yeah, that was my thing. And, 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 and the biggest thing that I really took away from that whole thing was, um, and of course, Paul is very famous, I think, for this, but but he said, look, best piece of advice I can give you is is be the master of one thing before you try and do everything. And I just think that's such a brilliant line. I think mm -hmm. it's it's been something that I've really stuck with. So my core product and my big passion is denim. And I've built a brand with the denim brand for, for just over 10 years now. Um, and denim has always been at the core and at the heart of everything. And I think... I think to Paul's advice, it's like, okay, master the denim, get that right, you know, and, and before you move into everything, then really get that right. So so denim is at the heart of it. Of course, today I make outerwear and knitwear and jersey and all kinds of things. We make beautiful accessories, mm -hmm. but denim is always at the heart of what and we do. And do you think there was a... A creative piece of advice or more a business piece I of advice? I think it was a great combination. I mean, I mean, creatively, of course, you should really do what you love. I think if you do mm -hmm. what you love, you'll do the best. Mm -hmm. And the thing I love the most is jeans. So naturally and instinctively, that, that, that's easy for me. Mm -hmm. um, but I think as a business piece of advice, I think, I think anyone who runs a brand or a business should always stay true to the core of what they do, what that business is about. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it's a, if it's a car or a coffee or anything. Um, I think you should really, you should really stick to that and, 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 and yeah. believe in that for the long term to make a business work. I think from a, let's say, positioning perspective, it's good to have focus in, in what you do and yeah. you can do stuff around it when it's Always. naturally connected to the core. But, Absolutely. Um, okay, so, um, and then you did university in Manchester. Um, your first internship, uh, you got to design jeans for you too. Yeah. How did that happen? That was an incredible lucky break. Um, so I was studying this, this course in Manchester And I got a phone call that there was an opportunity to uh, jump on a train, get down to London quickly. <laughs> uh, it was a Friday. I got the call. I needed to be there on Monday. Uh, but there was an opportunity to go and do an internship for a fantastic uh, designer of that time, an amazing guy called Joe Casely Hayford. Um, and he had his own label. He did beautiful stuff. He was very... Um, very, very artisanal and, 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 a, and a fabulous designer who I respected a lot. And at that time, he was also commissioned to do beautiful collections for U2. So they were doing the Zuropa tour and they and he was basically putting together all the collections. So I came in and joined him on that team and and spent hours and hours and, and lots of energy and lots of passion And did you sewing and building and scribbling and and doing doing a fun project. It was great. And to did do. you apply for the internship? Because I guess that everybody Actually, there was would a, like to there have was an internship. A, there was a girl on the there was a girl working in the company who'd come from the degree that I was doing, and she 
of course, everyone has their network and connections. Mm -hmm. She contacted the university to ask if there was any good potential candidates. And I was lucky my name came forward. Uh, so I jumped on the opportunity straight away. It was amazing to go and do it. And then did you actually work with you two or were you, yeah. so was there always a with few layers between you and... Yeah, no, of course there was layers, but there was working with Joe in the studio and, it, and Joe had a very small family business. Mm -hmm. uh, he worked together with his wife and a small studio uh, team and there was, there was machine operators and designers and pattern makers and the classic fashion setup, if you like. Uh, it was based in East London, which right then was an absolute shithole shit war zone. It was terrible. And today it's the coolest thing in London. Mm -hmm. um, but it was an amazing experience. And, and of course, the guys from U2 would come in occasionally for fittings or checking. And of course, you know, um, um, Bono is shorter than the edge and you've got to get all of these measurements and all these things right. But it was nice to, uh, to do those things. But we really made some incredible stuff. I mean, for a designer, it was amazing to work on pieces that cost thousands of pounds. You know, this wasn't, this wasn't a project about building something which is for, for um, you know, for production. This was real theatre one-off pieces. It was... It was made to measure and we worked with leather and denim. The inspiration for that collection at the time came from a pack of cards. So the whole thing for the tour was about clubs, hearts, diamonds and spades. So we were cutting out these these um, these graphics and it was very graphic work which resonated with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I was sitting on sewing machines and riveting rivets of jeans and, and it was fun. It was amazing. It was a great time to do that kind of thing in London. It was a great break and and then I did that and I finished it and I went back to university and then and then I kind of stepped into the real world of fashion and I got the job at the only real jeans brand in London at that time. Uh, which was Peppy Jeans. And yeah. Peppy Jeans was was a very well-established jeans brand. It was born in 1973 in London. Um, and it was going through a renaissance a little bit. And it was, it was, uh, it was being managed by a Dutch CEO. Um, how was that? And that was really the connection of how I got to Amsterdam. Was that a so coincidence that he was Dutch? He, he, he got involved with the investment group behind the company so that the company changed hands. It was originally founded by an Indian family. Okay. Um, and then this, uh, the new investment group came in and they put in this great guy called Fred Gearing to come and run the business. Um, and, and he was dynamic. He changed things and he's done incredible things in his career. Um, but I think this was first stepping stones of how to reinvent a business. So Peppy Jeans in London was, let's say, a little bit tired. It had been running since 73 and it, and it really needed to, um, to evolve. And he brought a whole new thinking and dynamic to that company. And in the end, he actually moved the company Pepe Jeans here to Amsterdam. So um, I was invited to come along with it. And that's how I got here. And, and that was a big inspiration for me. I think, I think, of course, being a denim guy was great. But moving to Amsterdam and soaking up Amsterdam culture and Dutch culture was was probably one of the biggest things that made me the designer who I am today. Because coming to this city and seeing how the Dutch really love jeanswear culture and understand it so well has kind of encouraged me to keep going and building that whole that whole denim thing that I've made. Let's let's go back one step. Because I'm curious, uh, you say there was only one jean, a proper jeans brand, in in london there was no jeans culture there was the, uh, not really or, or, i mean uk culture of course uh, london has many many styles i would say london is one of the most street style and international places in the world of course it's a very very mm -hmm. important capital many great things have been born out of london style punks and mods and all kinds of mm -hmm. things have happened um, and it still continues today every day there's so much going on um But, but jeans hasn't really been uh, at the heart of creativity from design companies in London. You know, mm -hmm. there's Peppy Jeans was one of them, but, but the jeans culture really has come from here in the Netherlands. There's very big, strong denim companies here. Of course, the tradition of jeans 
steps back to the US mm -hmm. and the US has been the very big thing. Um, you know, it's kind of jeans was owned by Americana up until around the 70s. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the traditional Americana brands, Lee, Levi's, Wrangler, all these guys owned the business. Uh, but then there was this amazing guy who became a second mentor for me, a guy called Adriana Goldschmidt, who really became, and he is today, we, we all call him the godfather of denim. Mm -hmm. And this guy's amazing, an Italian guy who had a real passion for denim. Uh, and what he did was to start building European denim brands. And, and what he did by building brands like Replay and Diesel, and he did a great thing by putting European flair and design into denim. And he was and he based, changed the landscape he, completely. So, of course, the heritage and the history of jeans will never die, will never go away. Levi's will always be the king. Yeah. Uh, but but Adriano really changed the game, and he's changed it many times. So he did that in Italy. He had his setup. He had this company that he called the Genius Group, um, and he was an incredible inspiration. And I've connected with him, and we're very good friends today. And he's taught me a lot about brand building and about about European denim culture uh, but he's also a guy who never stands still and and he really never looks backwards he um he then became one of the leaders in reinventing the the american denim scene so he moved to la and he became part of the culture of designing and creating the modern american jeans brand if you like so wow. an, an incredible guy to connect with a big mentor for me and why do you think, because I think you just said that in Amsterdam there's a real jeans culture. I I had heard of that, but yeah. it's I know but there's, you, a, there's you, a few brands here, but yeah, how, how did it, that I happen? I think if you, if you look at Amsterdam, it's a very young city. Mm -hmm. And Amsterdam isn't a very formal city. So, of course, I came from London and I was on the underground every day and there's the guys with suits and sounds, yeah. sounds cliche, the kind of bowler hats and the suits, but of course London's moved on from that, but there's, there's a dress code and there is a, there is a day uniform, if you like, for most of the employees and people and what's going on mm -hmm. in London at that time. And today, you know, you, you, when you come to Amsterdam, jeans is very much, you, you wear jeans for breakfast, lunch and dinner. It's funny, I don't even realize that. I've, yeah, I've lived in Amsterdam all my life and I, I, you know, I don't see that. But If a Dutch guy dresses up, he puts a sport coat on with his jeans. It's like, you know, and of course that sounds a cliche and it's, it's very different to that. And there's, a, and there's a lot more going on. But jeans is at mm -hmm. the heart of what everyone does. And I think because, because jeans is so important in the culture in this market, then... People take it seriously and do it well. So yeah. the stores and the buyers, this country's full of incredible independents that run jeans stores that really understand the product and understand quality and buying good jeans. And it's in the mindset of the Dutch persona, I think, that to understand jeans far better than the, than the British. You know, wow. the, the British see it as fashion or commodity, but here I think people understand it way better. Mm. So then you... You came to Amsterdam be, because Pepe Jeans yep. moved here. Um, how was that? Because that was a big of a, a bit of a. Um, well, I'm not sure if I could say culture shock, but you were very English, and I think it was a massive culture shock because Pepe said to me, uh, "Jason, we want you to fly to Amsterdam for the weekend and see if you like it." Mm -hmm. uh, and this was around 1996, I think, 97. Uh, and the first thing that I, I flew in and I was met at the airport by two very cool Dutch guys, uh, great guys who really knew the city very well. Uh, they picked me up at the airport and they drove me into the city and they took me to this crazy restaurant called the Supper Club, yeah. uh, which was a big culture shock. I was lying on a bed being <laughs> served my dinner by uh, artistic performers and naked people. And I was like, what the f where am I? This is a big culture shock. But I fell in love with the the freedom and the creativity of the city. You would never see a restaurant of that concept or that culture or that creativity in London at that time. It was just unheard of. I mean, I, I was like, wow, this is an incredible city. Um, you know, of course, I thought Amsterdam was like a village because it's tiny compared to London. Yeah. But I learned very quickly that Amsterdam has everything going for it. Some of the best 
venues I've seen bands play and, and, and arts and galleries and museums and exhibitions and everything's going on. So, and an incredible international scene, even, even back then when I first came to Amsterdam, there was an incredible creative design scene. A lot of, a lot of agencies at that time was, it was a big thing in Amsterdam and still is today. Uh, but then the fashion scene really started to grow and get bigger and a lot of international people came, I, I guess because they brought a lot of skills for the, for the brands that were coming. Um, uh, but of course this city already had its great denim brands. G-Star was really, uh, booming at that time and, and leading in the denim creative world and doing incredible things. And so many more things have come since. And, and I think it's a very exciting scene here. Ik onderbreek het interview nu heel even voor een commercial break. De wereld wordt steeds digitaler. En daardoor verdwijnt ons menselijk contact soms wel erg ver naar de achtergrond. Sonic Branding is een vorm van branding waarmee klanten zich onbewust aan je binden. En dat komt omdat muziek en geluid diep geworteld zitten in ons emotionele brein. Een sterke sound geeft je merk niet alleen meer bekendheid, maar ook meer persoonlijkheid. En zelfs een emotionele connectie met je klant. Amp Amsterdam is dé Sonic Branding Company. Ze zijn dé specialisten op het gebied van geluid voor merken en campagnes. Dat was mijn sponsor. Terug naar het interview. En so how how long did you work at Pepe Jeans then in Amsterdam before you before you started? Because I think for a brief time you did some jean consulting, whatever that yeah. is. Uh, but how long did you stay at Pepe Jeans? So I was I was with Pepe for a couple of years working for the company when it relocated, and then Pepe went through another change, and the the guy who ran the Spanish business. Um, he loved the business so much and he built such an incredible business in Spain. He ended up buying the whole company. Ah, okay. And when he bought the whole company, he moved part of the headquarters to, um, to Madrid. Um, and then I figured, okay, it was an interesting time for me to do my thing. I'd always, I'd always had ideas that I would set up my own company, that I would get the knowledge and I would learn. And, and Pepe Jeans was an incredible school. Yeah, of course. You know, it was a very generous company who gave me the opportunity to travel and see the world and go to factories and, and really learn the mm -hmm. industry, which was great. And I took that with me and, and, um, and then I decided to start my own consulting company. So my first con my first client was Pepe Jeans in Madrid. Yeah. Uh, but then I started to pick up a lot of other clients and I was working from all different levels. I was working with UK labels. And what kind of advice were you giving these brands? Everything. So I built a team very quickly and I realized the denim industry, although it's a huge multi-billion industry, it didn't have that many denim um, qualified, knowledgeable people across the different disciplines. Mm -hmm. So... So of course design is one thing and, and there's not many or there wasn't at that time skilled denim designers. Um, so I built a team with pattern makers and graphic designers and, and, and different people who could help advise companies where they have problems. So we were troubleshooting. You know, I called the company Clinic uh, because we were kind of like a denim doctor at the time. Ah, okay, yeah. Um, and I was helping denim mills about trend forecasting and what would be the direction of denim, which way would it go? Or I remember doing projects with Kenzo and LVMH to do packaging and branding, um, all different kinds of things. And it was great fun. It was interesting and I loved doing it. But I learned very quickly that consulting generally meant that you were dealing with other people's problems. <laughs> They had a problem to solve. Yeah. And of course, it was my duty to do that. And it was fun to do it. But after a while, I thought, I know this industry. I know this business. I'd rather know, solve my own problems. <laughs> I know the parts of it. I thought, okay, let's make my own problems. You're right. So, and, and everybody told me, um, you've got blue blood because I was so into denim and jeans and I was collecting and, and, and everything about denim was, was a big passion for me. And that's when I created my first brand, which was called Blue Blood. So... I loved the whole idea of, you know, blue blood has different connotations. It's kind of, it it's also a, has royalty. Also ro yeah, royalty. And I like that it was royalty and it was the best of the best. And I was always into premium and high level. You didn't need uh, a, an expensive brainstorm uh, to come up with that name. It no, I really, I really had the plan. I mean, I was very lucky that when I first joined Pepe Jeans, I was, um, I was put on an airplane to go to Japan. 
Um, and we went to Japan to do a research trip and look at the market. Mm -hmm. And I went to Japan and I got off the aeroplane and I couldn't believe where I'd landed. I was like, oh my God, this is the most... That was the first time you... First time I went there and it was just the most inspiring, another planner, another culture, um, but one that I just fell in love with immediately. So everything about Japan, and I think anyone who's been there would have the same experience as me, especially the first time. Um, but the way that they do everything impressed me. So you walk in a store and... I love that Japan is very much about the three senses and 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 it's all about the, the the thing that you see but it's also about the smell and I was just blown away by how it's overwhelming they, is it overwhelming everything and 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 I realized very quickly that the passion for design and authenticity but also modernity and architecture and packaging and music and fragrance and everything was new and everything was was incredible and That really inspired me a lot for Blue Blood when I built that brand. Uh, but I would say even more today for Denim, doing the Denim brand. Um, um, in fact, I'll be getting on an airplane on Sunday in a couple of days. Um, I'm back out to Japan again. I'm there I'm there many times a year, often. How, how, many, how, how long? Every like couple what? of months, I'm always there. And, and my team are always coming back here. But one of the first things I did with the Denim brand was say, okay, I want to build an international brand. Um, Amsterdam will always be the heart of the brand and the core of the brand. Yes. That's where we're born. We are a Dutch brand. We're a Dutch mentality. But I really want it to be a brand that's East meets West. I've always loved the East. And since that moment in Japan, what I really wanted to do was was take all of the essence and flavor and passion and quality of Japanese denim mm -hmm. and really put that together with the practicality of Dutch design um, and really put those two mm -hmm. things together and create something magical. And we have, Japan is our biggest market in the world today. We have beautiful stores over there and really captured the essence of what it is. But what's nice about when I'm in Japan, they love that we also bring Dutch design and British creativity and, and bring all those things together. And that's really how we started to build a global footprint. And the, as you say, the, the Japanese culture it's it's overwhelming yeah. and it's about senses and yeah. uh, touch and details and, yeah. and uh, they're very artisan in many ways i guess also um well what is it in your genes you think that appeals to them yeah it's a great question and i think it's i think it's very much down to down to one thing which is probably respect um but i'm i'm a huge fan of japan of japanese culture Um, of Japanese denim. Um, and when I fell in love with Japanese denim, I thought, okay, I need to research this. I need to study this. So, yeah. so one of the things that I did was, was really dive into the manufacturing process in Japan. And it's very, very difficult to work out and language skills are a huge barrier <laughs> and you need to connect with the right people and find your way. And it's incredibly, um, um, it's very, in Japan, you have to be respectful of time. Things take a long time to to develop and you, you can't push things too quickly. Um, and you have to do things the right way. So I couldn't believe the first time I went to a Japanese denim factory and I arrived at the door. They asked me to take off my shoes and put on a pair of paper slippers. I mean, this is a factory. When I've been in Italy or mm -hmm. Europe or anywhere in a factory... You know, you walk around a factory and it's industrial yeah. and there's things going on. In Japan, you take off your shoes and you bow at the door yeah. and you walk. I was like, whoa, this is incredible. Yeah. Um, but I think part of the success in Japan has been the fact that I've always had this passion for the product and made in Japan. So I've traveled through incredible journeys of, of sewing factories and, and weaving mills and laundries. And the part of the Japanese process has been a big part of my design culture, still is today. We're one of the few denim brands in the world that's still making in Japan. Of course, labor is very expensive in mm -hmm. Japan. It's become a very, um, a very, if you like, quite an elite thing, quite an exclusive thing. Uh, but it's still at the core of what we do every day. And, and I think in that whole balance of East meets West, You know, the big part of our industry and, the, and, and of our denim business today is what we do with denim from Candiani and Italy and all that kind of thing. But the Japanese part is very much at the heart of what we do. And 
and it's and it's been a big part of the success of the brand. What what I found when I was in Japan, I, I was I was there this year, and it was the first time, so very over, overwhelming, like yeah. you say. Um, I was at a train station and somebody was sweeping the stairs of the train station. Yeah, which is. Uh, which is let's say not a very highly educated job or yeah. something but they were so proud about their job yeah. and they stopped in their in their in their yeah. work yeah. to greet me in yeah. japanese yeah. and I, I don't know what they say yeah. but probably something like welcome to the station yeah. and i was like i was touched Amazing. i was like these people are so dedicated and yeah proud of their jobs whatever the job is yeah. that's how it felt to me um, I think you're absolutely right and I had exactly the same experience and I still try and teach our staff and our team the same message today but one of the first things that that struck me was how passionate retailers are people in stores and and one of the things I've experienced here in Europe is that people kind of treat retail a little bit like a stepping stone to something else. So employees who've come into the stores and work, they do it for a short time, but they always want to move on and they want to work in the head office or, or in design or it's, in something else. It's part else. of your career it's to do that. part of a career, it's a step. Yeah. You know, students like to work in stores, of course, and they move on. Yeah. In Japan, it's very different. In Japan, retail is a career and it's taken very seriously and it's respected for what it is. So people really... Retail is an art form and, and it's and it's respected and it's done well. And I think to your point, the way that the guy on every level is communicating with you and and doing it right, I think it's I think they do that very well. And then our design, our, our brand signature, our sign-off, if you like, uh, is the truth is in the details. And the truth is in the details was something that I want, wanted to really put into the essence of the brand. So when it's the brand... Of course, the first thing and the most important thing in the brand is the product. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, in the product, there's the details in everything that we do. So I'm a huge fan of materials. That comes first for me. If you don't use good materials, you can't build good products. And and that's a big thing. But then it's also the construction, the make, the details, the things that are going on. The rivets. On. And, uh... Yeah, and it's and jeans are full of that. And, and they're full of it on the outside and you turn it on the inside and there's everything else, which is details. But then very quickly as I developed the brand and the culture of the brand, I learned that the truth is in the details isn't the product only. It's very much about everything that we do. So the truth is in the details is big in our communication, in our in our presentation of the brand, in our retail formats, in in our marketing communication. And, and of course, that was starting then. And today, of course, it's the detail in everything that we do. And in 2008, when we launched the brand, nobody spoke about um, e-com because it wasn't really born then. You know, it sounds crazy, but e-com's 10 years old now. No one spoke about it then. Sustainability wasn't the big message on everyone's lips then. We were all conscious of what we were doing, but now it's the most important thing. And 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 I think these are big things that we really put, the truth is in the details into all of these things. So. You mean that if you start something new, yeah. that you properly do your research and you properly do it? Yeah, and it's you not stick just... to it and you do everything. So, so, you know, when we founded the brand in that we had our core values and those core values we've always stuck to, And those core values, you can go from from anything that you do in the business. So, so like I said, you know, it's like we didn't do e-com for five years or six years when we started the business. But now we started it. We put the truths and the details in the e-com. And we put that way of thinking in the e-com. And, and the same with sustainability or the same with social media, even those things didn't exist in that time. And sustainability, um, just to sort of zoom in on that a little bit. That's a big thing. Very. Um, and I guess in making jeans, it's mm. difficult to be sustainable because it's... it's. That's a huge myth that's completely wrong. Oh, that's wrong. Okay. Um, and, I, and I say that passionately because jeans gets a lot of bad press about sustainability. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, I live, breathe, and I do this industry every day. But, but if you think about it, if you think about jeans, jeans aren't disposable clothing. So the biggest issues with sustainability today, of course, is consumption and landfill. And yeah. of course, it's all about chemicals and products and how we do everything. But, but one of the things that I really value about jeans and mine in particular is quality and longevity and, and this kind of thing. So we've always encouraged since the first day that 
when you buy a pair of jeans and a pair of denim jeans, um, you have an investment piece. You have something that's going to last you a very, very long time. You can wear them every day. The good thing about a pair of jeans, and guys do this, of course, you don't wash them every day. You know, they're hard-wearing. They come from a workwear background. You put them in the freezer. You put them in the freezer. I mean, there's all these things. And, of course, we encourage jeans, and the more you wear them, the better they get. Mm -hmm. um, I've always had a... Um, um, a belief that we should give an after service to the gene as, as, as important as the services when we're trying to sell a product. Uh, but of course, we will service our customers' genes for life. That's an important thing that we do. Um, of course, genes don't last forever. There comes a point when you've got to hang them up and stop wearing them. Um, but we recently launched a process, and this is great, and it's all about recycling and upcycling. So we have a concept now where when you're finished with your pair of jeans and you're done wearing them because they're worn through yeah. and they're gone, um, then you can bring your jeans back to our stores um, and we will recycle them for you. Oh, wow. So we'll either upcycle them and turn them into something else or we recycle them through our Italian Candiani denim mill. And all of the material that they can use, they will recycle into new fiber and new denim. Mm -hmm. And then the waste that comes from that, there's always waste in, in, in making, that gets used into um, building materials. So you put it into insulation and walls and all these kind of things. So sustainability in the denim industry is a big thing in the last, last five years, let's say. But for us as a brand since 2008, we always had very, very... Um, strong values about sustainability. I've always been a very big believer in working with the best materials and working with the most sustainable denim mills in the world. And we do that in Japan. Um, probably the most famous and sustainable denim mill in the world today is Candiani Denim in Italy. Uh, it's made in a nature reserve in Milan. So you can imagine how strict the rules and regulations are. But it's also a family of four generations that really cares about this. You know, they, they, their statement about being sustainable is that we've been sustainable for 80 years. What are you talking about? This is what we do. Yeah. Um, and they work with the most incredible uh, sustainable dye stuffs and, 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 and waterless technology. And it's incredible how they work. And we've partnered with these guys since we started okay, so around 10 years they ago. They basically so, developed the in innovative ways. Of course, of because these guys are the vendors and the makers and the, and, and of course it's up to me as a brand owner to, to take on board and encourage and work, work with them. Mm -hmm. But these guys are developing the technology and I'm often the first brand with these guys to pilot a new idea of sustainability um, and a new technology. So there's, there's a great partnership and relationship in what we're doing. So it, it sounds like you have this natural, innovative drive to always sort of yeah. do something new. Um, and that's, I, I am guessing, quite expensive. Is that also why you, when you first started, want to have a bit of a higher end brand so that you could do more? Or how, yeah. how, how did you choose that? I've always been passionate about product. Um, and I think I'm more passionate about product and process than I am about money. Okay. You know? And I think if I was passionate about money, I would have been scale, drive, bigger, 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 better. Yeah. And that's not me. I think I'm definitely about long term. And I think that's what makes me a brand builder. Um, I knew that building this brand would be a long process and and I wanted to create something meaningful and something that lasts and something that happens in time. Uh, but I've always believed massively in quality and, and of course, quality comes at a price. Um, and we've built architecture into our collection so that I can, of course, I accept that not everybody wants to pay um, two, three, four, five hundred euros for a pair of jeans. There's a great market for that in Japan and certain markets where consumers really buy into that and follow that. Um, but the Dutch are cheap. But the Dutch, well, the Dutch are cheap, but the Dutch understand jeans, so the Dutch are not cheap. So, okay. So of course they understand what they're buying into, which is great. So, so of course we sell our jeans here in the Netherlands, and yes, we sell some Japanese jeans. Of course, we sell far more in Japan. Um, and that's also a little bit part of our sustainable plan. You know, we build jeans in Japan and we, so and 80% of it stays there. So we don't have a big carbon footprint like yep. that. Mm -hmm. We build a lot of jeans here in, in Italy. 
um, and in Europe, and a lot of the Euro produ European production stays here. Uh, we also have stores in China, and we have some, some business in China. Of course, we keep a lot of the production from China in China for that market too. But going back to the Dutch, I think, I think you know, the Dutch are happy to pay price value, and they're happy to invest in quality, and they're also happy to invest in brands. They understand what goes into a brand. So, so we sell our jeans here for, uh, for a, I don't know, one... 170, 180, 200, these kind of prices. Um, and that's accepted and it works very well and we've got a great consumer base for that. And wasn't that difficult in the, when you just started your brand because nobody knew it? And yeah. were they cheaper then? It was or? interesting because in 2008 we hit recession. And everybody says never start a business in those times, but I've actually found it's probably the most exciting and opportunist time when you can start a business. There was the crash on Wall Street in yep. 2008. Mm -hmm. there, was, there was a lot of fear and what the hell's going on in the world. Um, and, and I thought, okay, well, look, we've, I was just stepping out of Blue Blood. Yeah. And, and with Blue Blood, I'd made a name for myself and uh, I'd made a brand that was definitely known in the market here. And you, um, and you, you probably learned from the mistakes you made in that I first. learned so many amazing things from Blue Blood. I, meant, I learned fantastic things and I learned things never to do again. <laughs> and, and that's great. You, you learn the good and the bad. And yeah. We did incredible things at Blue Blood and we, we worked with an amazing team and, and, and it was a great, exciting time. Well, if I may, what was one of the things that you, you were sure about not to do again? Can, can you give an example? There's a bunch of things. I mean, from a, from a design creative point of view with Blue Blood, I learned learned that making premium denim and, and using all of my Japanese influence and, and, and really building special products with stories, that was the right thing to do yeah. because that was what the consumer was engaging with. Yeah. And that gave me a point of difference from the other brands in the market that were already established at the time. So that was definitely the right thing to do. Um, the thing not to do... <laughs> Um, and there was many things that we learned, but but we learned don't don't go too fast. You know, we learned be patient and focus. So when I launched Blue Blood, we we took the brand to shows in Italy. Uh, there's a famous show called Pitiuomo, and we took there. And and when you go there, you meet international buyers from all over the world. Uh, we also took the brand to America, and we went to um, a big show in America called Project. And we had an incredible time and we sold the brand very quickly, very fast to lots of stores. Um, but what I learned very quickly was you don't go to America until you're really, really ready. So, of course, we went there and we showed a very creative, beautiful brand, but we didn't have the business infrastructure ready to control American business. So, of course, in America, if you want to do business, you need RN codes and you need a legal team behind you. And and it's very, very complicated it's with shipping and contracts. It's a huge investment to do it well. It's a huge investment. And if you fuck up, the American buyers will have no patience for you. You'll get penalties. You'll get lawsuits. Um, okay. it's, it's a big challenge. So an amazing opportunity. But I thought to myself, okay, with my brand Denim, I'm not going to focus on the West. I'm not going to focus on the US. I'm going to go East. I'm going to build something very carefully and nurture it in Japan. And that's how I started to build the brand. So I really said, okay, Asia first, and then I'll go back and I'll do America later. Um, I'm actually in the process right now of starting to do America in the coming six months. So after 10 years, I figured it's time to go and do that. I sell the brand in a few beautiful stores over there today. Already. Already. So we've always been positioning in some of the most beautiful places. But you've been careful. <laughs> but very careful and did it step by step and used some, if you like, experience, but also some business acumen to do, do it the right way. I read somewhere that it took you... 10 years to make a profit and that was mm. probably because you were investing everything you made into yep. your product. Was that exciting or was it nerve-wracking? Uh, no, it was... Well, I, well um, no, I don't say no, I'd be lying. I think, I, think, um, I think fear is part of the excitement, of course, in any business, um, as long as you're confident. And I was always truly confident that Denim Brand will be a big brand in the world. Um, and when I started, I started very clearly with a strong business plan. Mm -hmm. um, what I thought was strong at the time, of course, you learn every day, and that's important for me every day. And 
we always work on three year three year business plans ahead and we're always adapting and changing and and like i said the world has changed a lot since 2008 when we started to today the whole business model's completely changed the landscape's changed everything's changed um but i always knew that i had a a, a passion and a core product and a brand value that could work and and i invested a lot of my own money in um in the company at the start because i believed in it mm-hmm. and i brought on investors who believed in me too so so i always thought okay if i'm going to build this thing i need i need finance and i need expertise around me to build this thing and i didn't want to build a small brand in a small studio with a few people and 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 make something nice beautiful but small i really wanted to build something that has the potential to be global to be international mm-hmm. so i'm not talking about i want to build the biggest thing in the world far from it what i wanted to build was something relevant that really matters in in key markets that i love and 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 has a longevity and a potential to become a denim brand for many years to come and that and knowing that then i was never nervous about building the profit because i knew that the plan was always coming because we were always growing the business we were introducing new markets we've invested always everything that we've made we've always invested back and i guess so, you go, you also get positive feedback from your amazing, marketing yeah so we started the brand and ecom didn't exist for four or five years in our brains you know there, there was this thing when i started the brand um in 2008 called zalando and no one had really heard of Zalando we're mm-hmm. like what is this and it wasn't on anyone's radar at all and Zalando last year had their 10 year anniversary they're huge um, <laughs> they did 5 billion last year and they plan to do 10 billion in the next two years so that shows you the scale and the power of ecom and what these guys are doing yeah. and how important they are today um and of course what we've done as a company of course is invest in our ecom so now we have a team of ecom people and and this is part of the process of building all the time you know sustainability is important today we have sustainability as a as a huge part and exercise of what we do when we invest money in that every day social media you know we have social community managers in our team now so of course headcount has grown over the years and we're always investing uh, when we first built the brand we were in a beautiful tiny little canal house building on the Prinsengracht uh, on the Prinsengracht and it was beautiful and I loved it and it was our home and it was a like a family cottage business you know I started the company together with my wife and we've built that thing together uh, but today we've relocated and we're in an industrial area if you like but a very cool in, and upcoming in Amsterdam Noord in a Amsterdam beautiful Nord on, on beautiful NDSM, headquarters and it's fabulous and it's and I love it because we're constantly evolving I, I one of my biggest um business but also brand kind of things has been to build a brand and build a business you've you've got to be consistent you really have to be consistent but then you always have to look forward and you have to move ahead and you have to evolve evolution is so important mm-hmm. and that's in everything you do so we've got to be consistent with our product but we have to evolve with our product yeah and it's the same with with the people and the team and a lot of great people who joined us in the company uh in the beginning we have still with us um but not everybody makes it and people want to move on and different do different things and you you have to you have to embrace that you know you have to encourage people to do new things but it also gives us the chance to bring great new talent into the team as well and that's been a big thing of of taking the business forward do you do you have to be sometimes an asshole to 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 run a growing business just to make sure that everybody keeps his eye on the details just to be sure that everybody's consistent in Definitely. guarding the brand I've never heard this before but I love the way you describe that do you have to be an asshole um <laughs> and I think that's why I was never really a great CEO because yeah. I wasn't an asshole enough <laughs> so that's why I employed other people to do that job for me um because you're now uh, the chief creative yeah. officer so uh, you know, I'm, i'm the chief creative and the and and the founder of the brand and i i still love and eat sleep breathe the brand every day um but what i learned very quickly is bring in good people and and of course the ceo is the is the core guy uh, in the business there was a gap in the in the business where we didn't have a ceo and we needed one and i did that myself um And I loved it and I'm a business guy and it was great being involved with it but my true true passion is is 
that makes me more than happy is when I'm when I'm being creative, when I'm when I'm in the market, when I'm in the factory, when I'm in our studio. Does that feel um, like luxury now? Being able to solely it's amazing. focus. I love on that. And what's great now is I get more and more time to do that now because we've got the people and the infrastructure in place. So so through different investment parties who've been involved in the group, I've I've been very lucky to work with some great CEOs and and, and leaders in the company. Um I worked with a great guy, Ludo Onink, who was part of the group and, and a super talented Dutch guy who I learned a lot from. Um, and he was a big part of helping us move the business forward. Um, he had moments of being an asshole and he was good at that. And, and he'll laugh if he hears this because that was what he had to do. Uh, and he taught me that I should be a bit more often probably. Um, I think the the biggest the biggest brands, the most successful brands in, in, in the world... Um, all have CEOs yeah. um, that are every now and then uh, well they, they can be charming but they can yeah. also be the opposite of charming have I guess be, have uh, to push. and if you're too kind I guess uh, yeah. y- it's hard to push a brand forward yeah uh, no, I think I think the role of a, of a founder of a brand is that we need to we need to hold on to the core values of the brand but we also need how to we, we we know how to steer and guide and take the brand forward I think having a great CEO is is someone who really has a solid business knowledge and understands timing, understands where the brand's at today and how it will get through the journey in the future and how it will grow respectfully to the brand. So, you know, we, we, we have a strategy for our brand that we want to grow and we want to build it, but we're not looking to be the biggest and we're not looking to take over the world. We're looking to do it in the right way for 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 the integrity of the brand. So you would never go public, for example, because then the stakeholders might take over. Yeah, I mean, that's an issue. You never say never, of course, and, and, and it depends how you do that. But but I'm very excited now. We have a new CEO in our company, and, and he's a fantastic guy. He's an Asian guy. Um, he's from Taiwan, and he's a guy called Andre Chen. Um, and he's an amazing guy who's very dynamic. He... he, he He has actually a more of a sportswear background. He worked with Nike for for many, many years. And the things that he learned, and I think Nike is probably one of the most incredible business schools in the world. Um, but of course, they have a true, true passion for their products. Um, and he's taught me a hell of a lot about his experience and his learnings and his journey. But I think what's amazing for us as a brand is I've always been East meets West and Asia has been a core of our business. Our biggest markets in the world today, um, of course, um, Japan and China is a very important for us market for us. And he has real hands-on experience in these markets. So our CEO today spends two weeks in Asia and two weeks in Europe. He's constantly wow. playing backwards and forwards. But he's he's also eat sleeping living breathing the brand and and he's learned that brands have culture and heritage and history and passion and I've taught him that and of course he's teaching me that Asia needs innovation and it needs and it and it needs newness to really guide it forward and, mm-hmm. and we ha- we're working on a very healthy balance uh, to take the brand into the future. Sounds great um, and. In the beginning of the interview, you said something about we're not just making jeans anymore. I believe that maybe 50% of your business yeah. is, is other things than yeah. jeans, other fashion. Yeah. Um, how far would you want to go beyond jeans? Will it be just fashion or do you sometimes think, uh, I'm a bit tired of jeans. I, I would like to do something else either with the brand that you have now or maybe do something new how do you see that? well i think the first thing is i will never ever forget mr paul smith's words of be the master of one thing before you do anything yeah jeans will always be at the core of what we do okay. and i will never tire of that i will i will do that until you put me in a box and that's done <laughs> but um but i honestly have and i think it's like every designer i have a true passion for design um doesn't matter if it's if it's clothing or if it's furniture or if it's uh, luggage, accessories, car, cars. I love everything. So, um, of course, we're building our own collections because we have a retail business model, and we have, we have, uh, we have around sixty-five stores in the world, um, and we want to make those exciting places to go to. So, of course, the denim makes it exciting. Of course, that's what we do. But we want to give our customers stuff that we love. If it's if it's collections of 
seasonality shorts in the summer and outerwear in the winter and but when we do that we treat it like the denim so we really do it and we try and build the best of the best mm -hmm. the way that we understand and and that's fun to do all of that and and to help me do that we've brought in a very strong creative design team with very good people who are skilled in those disciplines um, and we make great products that go with that but I think what's really exciting as a brand and I, and I think it takes time to become a brand and and after 10 years we really have built a strong a strong brand um, but now we have the luxury of having the great opportunity to collaborate with people so um, of course we're collaborating and I have super exciting collaborations coming up in the near future which I can't talk too much about today because of the way the world works and mm -hmm. we launch these things on social media all, all at the right time. Yeah. Um, but I'm loving this whole new discipline of creating products, working with different companies and different disciplines and then, and then doing exclusive launches and, and, and really having fun with. So you could start at some point, maybe a boutique hotel or something. It could be anything, of course. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. And, I, and I think that's exciting to do all these different kind of things for sure. All right, um, I think I think I'm there. Great! Thanks so much Great. for this interview. It's a pleasure. Good talking to you. All right, cool. Thank you. Dank voor het luisteren naar Creative Achievers. Dank ook Adformatie voor het maandelijkse artikel in jullie blad en Amp Amsterdam voor het ter beschikking stellen van jullie prachtige studio aan de Stadhouderskade 1 in Amsterdam. Als deze interviews smaken naar meer. Abonneer je dan op deze podcast via het platform van jouw voorkeur. En laat vooral een comment achter of wat likes, want dat helpt de podcast in zijn bekendheid. Meer informatie over de interviews vind je trouwens ook op www.creative-achievers.com. Tot de volgende podcast.